0: You're listening to Garibaldi Red, a Nottingham Forest podcast brought to you by Nottinghamshire Live. Hello and welcome to Garibaldi Red, the Nottingham Forest podcast from Nottinghamshire Live. My name is Matt Davis and we're doing something a bit different today, um, looking at football management because we all criticise managers after results so I thought it would be good to have some kind of insight into what the job is actually like. So we're joined by two former Forest managers to discuss the ins and outs of being a manager. First joining us is former Reds manager, Frank Clark, who also managed Leighton Orient and Manchester City. Frank, good morning. How are you? Yeah, good morning, Matt. I'm surviving. (laughs) That's all we can for at the moment. Well, it's to be expected. (laughs) And our second guest is former Forest, Portsmouth, Chesterfield, Lee, I might be missing someone. Manager Paul Hart. Good morning, Paul. Are you well.
1: Morning, Matt. Yes, very well, thank
0: you. Good, 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 good. Um, Frank, so you're not quite out of the game, you know you watch Forest all the time. But you've had a long career, and Paul, you're still very much in the thick of it in the Championship as first team coach at Luton. So not longer, no longer a manager, but in the game still. I suppose I wanted to ask first of all, um, why would anyone want to be a manager? Because you know, I don't go into my job thinking it's going to go all right for a few weeks and then as soon as it goes bad, I'm going to get sacked. So you're almost on a bit of a hiding to nothing as a manager. So, um, Frank, why did you want to be a manager?
2: <laughs> well, I had to find a job when I stopped playing and uh, I'd always fancied going into uh, coaching and management. Um, <clears throat> I didn't have a burning desire to be a manager, but uh, I got a good opportunity to start as an assistant manager at Sunderland. Uh, and went on from there. Uh, I think the thing about managing, especially today, you have to really want to do it. It's no good uh, going into it half-hearted. It's become a very, very difficult job, and you have to you have to really, really want to do it and
0: apply yourself 100 percent to it. Is that something you can empathise with, Paul? Seeing you know the pressure Nathan Jones is under in jobs. I mean, you, you, did, did you even want to be a manager yourself?
1: Uh, I sort of got the feeling um, when uh, I came to Nottingham Forest I was 30 when I came to Nottingham Forest and and of course I worked with Brian Clough who was um, you know to me he was inspirational and a coach in a very different way the, the way we look at coaching now but acceptable and then I went to work at um, Sheffield Wednesday and For the first time, really, I I saw uh, prepared coaching sessions uh, and uh, uh, tactical shapes taking place when I started, uh, when I was uh, managed by Howard Wilkinson. And and at that point, that really uh, sparked my interest. And uh, he suggested I, I did my. Uh, a license at that point while I was still playing and I did it I went to Lillishall and did it uh, didn't find it easy at all uh, but I was starting to get my head round uh, I and I enjoyed the um, the tactical element that, that went with it so uh, you know I, was, I still carried on playing and then I broke my leg at Birmingham and accepted a post at Notts County as a uh, play a coach. Uh, and from there the the, the sort of bug and the the desire to become a manager was was probably formed through those uh, latter years of my playing career.
0: When you took your first job, Paul, is it hard not to do your best impression of Brian Clough and Howard Wilkinson combined and just try and you know be the the manager you think you should be rather than the manager you want to be?
1: Well it, it is difficult and there are so many things, I mean, you know, Frank, uh, Frank worked with, um, uh, Brian Clough, uh, for far longer than I did. And he will tell you that were, uh, you know, that you will, you would have looked at, uh, managers that you've worked with and taken or tried to use the best things that, um, that they gave you, uh, you know, and, and, I could never be anything like Brian Clough. But there are certain principles that uh, that uh, were about our football club, Nottingham Forest, that, for me, uh, are eternal. And then with Howard, um, I learned so much from him and, and so much uh, stayed, you know. And, and I, again not in the same street as Howard Wilkinson by any means but I was grateful to both those managers for the, for the for the little bits of things they gave me because mm. I, I, I I'm not ashamed to say I've used I've used it I does that ring true? the managers <laughs> does
0: that ring true to you Frank plagiarizing managers to be the best manager you can be well, absolutely I mean I think it's, it's, it's true for everyone you, who you pick up things during <clears throat>
2: during your life. You work with people and you see the good things that they do and the things that work and the things that don't work. You take all, all them in and, and then you, and then it comes out of you and it's your personality and your character that, that decides whether you'll be uh, successful or not. Especially today, every would-be manager, probably every manager, has done all the courses, has soaked up all the knowledge, Uh, They know how to coach They know about putting on drills and all that But some are not going to be successful And some are going to be absolutely very successful Mm. So that's what you do I mean, as Paul says There's no way I would ever try to be like Brian Clough I mean, I played for a manager at at Newcastle Called Joe Harvey uh, Who was totally different And I learned more at at Newcastle from the coaches People like Jimmy Greenhoff uh, Keith Bergenshaw Dave Smith Um, but you take all these things in um, some you discard, some you think yeah I'm going to do that when I get the chance and then it comes out uh,
0: with your personality as you Do you think a manager needs to start at the bottom then Frank and work their way up? (laughs) Not necessarily it's
2: it's a good way Um, the problem is in the game today um, that sort of thing very rarely happens. I mean, when I when I first started, uh, obviously before Paul, you could do that. You know, Brian Cliff started Hartlepool. Uh, you can't get much lower than that in the in the football league. I mean, Hartlepool had, had to apply for re-election about three years in a row, um, and he was able to work his way up. But it, it's very very difficult to do that today. But obviously, the more experience you've got doing the job as you, as you do move up the levels to a bigger club because the problems, whilst they're more or less the same, you've still got to win football matches no matter where you're at. Um, the pressure obviously is, is much greater.
0: Mm. Do you think there's a template to be a good manager, Paul? Because no one can be the total package. I mean, Ferguson must have had weaknesses and Wenger and so on and so forth. So is there a, an archetypal good manager?
1: Well, uh I- Like uh, Frank was alluding to there, uh, managers are made up of uh, many different components and probably we're all different, and to copy uh, is dangerous as well. But I I remember reading uh, a quote from Sir Matt Busby, who when asked, uh, what would you, what would be the first question you would ask of a potential manager uh, coming in? He said, uh, uh, and Matt Busby replied, are you lucky? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, uh, great one. <laughs> and, and you do need. I mean, you, you look at Sir Alex uh, was a game away from from uh, probably going out the door, and he was saved. In was it at Oxford in the um I oh, think older, something like right? that? Yeah by, yeah, by the the now Coventry manager uh, uh, scoring a goal. And you know, you 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 know, we all say where we. You know, uh, looks looks a a component that you don't need. You know, you you can you have to put that to one side, but you you have to have a certain amount of good fortune in your career, I think, Mm
0: -hmm. along
1: with undoubtedly. And and Frank Frank knows more than me. You know, managers now uh, uh, are we're almost on the European uh, circuit of two years and and off and. You know, one year maybe, and and we, you know, we're also we've got a, a, an awful lot of um, foreign managers coming into this country who are who are used to that. They are, they are um, travelers, and um, mm-hmm. uh, it's changing. The face of management is changing, and preparation, presentations, um, you know, detail that you give players it's it's, uh, it's
0: endless. Mm. I mean, are you glad you're not a manager, Frank, now? Well, I
1: read in the paper yesterday that there's
2: a manager in the Premier League on £15 million a year. Um, so, I wouldn't mind having a go at that. that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you would never uh, take the drop,
1: Frank. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean,
2: I'm glad I'm out of it now because I'm too old I haven't got the energy anymore. But um, it's just a a different set of problems. And as Paul says, you have to accept that you you, you have to survive. That's the key to it. And Howard Howard Wilkinson, Paul's been talking about, was also a great mentor to me, although I never never actually worked for him. Uh, But I spent a lot of time with him. And um, you have to accept what the situation is is going to be. And... uh, you get the job, you go in, you've got a contract for however long, um, but you have the realization that if you don't succeed, you'll probably get the sack. Mm. Uh, but things are better than that at respect today because the LMA are much, much, much stronger. And most managers, not everybody, but most managers, when they get the sack, the contractual uh, details are sorted out very, very quickly. Whereas in, in my time when I first started, You might have to wait a year or two years to get the money that that you were due in your contract. And clubs used to use that time to try and starve you out, if you like, force you into accepting another job so they they didn't have to pay you so much compensation.
0: Mm, mm. Have either of you ever taken a job where you've gone in in a good situation I mean, when you when both of you came into Forest, they weren't exactly perfect. Scenarios. <laughs> Have you, either of you ever had a job where you've been able to uh, hit the ground running, or has it always been going in and having to fight some fires initially? Well, some,
2: some are better than some are worse than others, you know. Um, uh, well, me we a... sorry, sorry, Paul, Forest was uh, was a difficult situation. But there were an awful lot of pluses to it, you know. I uh, I knew the club, I knew how it worked. Uh, I knew we had a we had a core uh, of good players, um, but they'd just had a couple of difficult years um, because Brian hadn't been too well for a couple of years, and they the the club had, had gone down a little bit, and there were quite a few problems uh, off the pitch uh, that I had to address. Um, but I knew that I'd uh, given a bit of luck, which Paul mentioned, and every manager needs needs a bit of luck. Uh, I did think that I had a chance of uh, of turning it around quickly.
0: Mm, mm. What about you, Paul? Have you ever taken a job in a good situation?
1: No, not really. Not um, uh, Nottingham Forest for me was a was a, a good job, a good situation because um, although. Uh, huge financial um, restrictions were placed upon upon, uh, me as manager, Uh, I knew that given time uh, that what I was doing as an academy manager and what my staff were doing would pay dividends. And so uh, I've never had any uh, real money at football clubs or anything like that but the Nottingham Forest situation was the best for me because I could see, I knew what we got and I could see down the line. And then, you know, we played we played our kids and, and fortunately our recruitment policies were good and, and our, our upbringing was good and, and we could put young players in, although, you know, the majority were sold uh, over, over a period of time that's about the best situation I've had but, but, but really because I knew the club and I knew what was uh, what was around and, and for me it was it was a huge challenge and I'm um, uh, with everything and Frank probably will touch on this as well because he, he's you know with a great respect Frank is far more I go to Frank and ask questions uh, of uh, what shall I do and all that so I you know he, he stands very high in my order of respected confidence and things like that, but I, but you know you also need uh, the support of people above you, and if if that's not there, life becomes even more difficult.
2: Yeah, I mean that's very true. Um, one of the skills that a, a manager needs today, probably more so than, than certainly when I first went into it, <coughs> he needs to be able to manage up not only has he got to manage the dressing room and, and his, his staff, he needs to be able to build a relationship with the owners um, because owners, most owners today have much more uh, power, influence, say, for want of a better word, uh, than, than, than when we played. Um, I mean, I know managers who used to treat their directors... With absolute contempt, not mentioning any names, um, you can't do that today. You have to be able to to manage up uh, and, and deal with the owners. I mean, you're going to get. We were trying to get Sean O'Driscoll on this <coughs> this program today. Well, that, I would have found that quite interesting because I was I was like an ambassador when uh, when Sean got the manager's job at, at Forest when the Al hasawis were in charge, and Sean couldn't manage up. He didn't want to to know, really. Um, And I I felt sorry for him because he never managed a big club like Forrest were. He was a very good coach, but he just didn't want to know uh, the owner. So he he had no kind of relationship at all. And I think that's what cost him his job, ultimately. So Mm. managers have to be able to do that these days. You can't just uh, dismiss when the chairman asks you a question. You can't just say it's none of your mm, business. You've got to have a relationship with them now or it'll
0: it'll get you in the end. Hmm. Was that what you found, I think, in your career, Paul? Would Portsmouth be the best example of that? That was a, must have been a very difficult job for you when Portsmouth were trying to stay in the Premier League and it sounded like they had a lot of problems.
1: Yeah, because I I took that job on as a caretaker. Uh, I brought Brian Kidd in with me and he was a massive help. Uh, I I really... I was working with the chief exec uh, more than anything, never really met the owners. The owners were Israeli who went into... uh, The family had great difficulties financially at the time and uh, uh, we had to work with the players but I had no real uh, contact with owners or or anything I, it was a it was a close working relationship or with the chief exec and uh, uh, but I recognise uh, I recognise exactly what Frank's saying and Howard Wilkinson when I went in there as academy manager in 92 said that you know you're in here you know do the job he was he was brilliant he gave me he allowed me to 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 find my feet and everything but he said if you want anything don't come to me you have to uh you know anything that's needed financially whatever uh you need to be you need to go to the chairman or the uh, chief exec bill Fotherby, the leslie silver and talk to them and you have to manage and he was teaching me
2: yeah, very good.
1: Yeah, he was putting he was putting me on in there to learn what was necessary for the future, and and I, I've got to be perfectly honest. Um, uh, the wonderful club, Notting Forest, is uh, I probably failed uh, on that point at the time I was there. We, we had mm-hmm. a I was appointed by a board, and very quickly afterwards. Uh, uh, run by an owner, and uh, uh, there were difficulties, but um, not in a in a rude way or anything like that. But it, it, it was to my detriment. But uh, uh, you know, I I probably should have worked harder.
0: Hmm. what about you at Man City Frank I mean that's a not the club it is now but that's a hell of a job and um, what was it like working there I think I read you got you found out you got the bullet by local media or something listening to the radio that must have been an unusual job for you
2: yeah it was it was the wrong move for me I should never have taken the job Uh, I was still a little bit scarred from what had happened at uh, at Forest Um, and the job came along um, I was sold a bit of a a bit of a false prospectus, if you like. Uh, um, When I met Francis Lee, who was the chairman, he told me that the the board, who'd been, obviously there'd been a lot of infighting in the past, which I knew about, that the board were all united um, as one, and they had fantastic training facilities. And when I got there, I found that that neither of those were true, really. Um, There were two or three factions on the board who owned um uh shareholdings, but nobody held uh, a majority if I could if I could say one thing, the best kind of club to join is one where you have a benign dictator. Unfortunately dictators don't tend to be very benign or a bit thin on the ground um but uh, if you have one one guy who is in in charge who owns more than 50 percent of the club, that's the best way to be. Mm. Uh, I mean, I worked for a bloke at, uh, at Leighton Orient. <laughs> it was an incredibly difficult job, Leighton Orient, you know, down there. Um, but I worked for a chairman called Tony Wood, who owned the whole club. And I was able to establish a, a great relationship with him. Um, so I never had any problem. But in Manchester City, we had two or three groups um, who all had. 20, 25, 25 percent, something like that, and there was infighting going on all the time. Having said all that, I didn't do myself justice. I didn't do the job justice either. I uh, I let the whole scenario situation get to me, if you like, and, uh, and and I lost. I lost really what I was about and what I was uh, what I was wanting to do. Um, so I, I mean, I I'm not making excuses. I take a large degree of the blame that it didn't work out um, But that, Yeah the way I was sacked obviously The way I heard about it was really typified the club um, I'd just driven to Sunderland The night before to watch Sunderland play Because they were our next game Got home about 3 or 4 O'clock in the morning uh, and Got up to go into training Turned the radio on and there it was um, Joe Royal is being appointed Manager of Manchester City Today All right, okay. (laughs) Um, Then I got a phone call about 20 minutes later from Francis Lee saying, can you call in in my house on your way to the ground? Um, That's how I found out, which is very disappointing. Mm -hmm. But typically the way the
0: club was at that time. Is it a lonely job being a manager, Frank? Is it on a bit of an island or are there people you can lean on? can be.
2: Uh, I'm sure Paul would, would agree with that. It can be a lonely job because uh, ultimately you're the man who's, who's making the decisions. Sometimes when you're sat on that bench uh, and you're 3-0 down at home and all the staff were edging away from you on the bench and you knew the chairman was up in the box not too happy and telling all his mates what a useless manager you were, um, it could get a bit lonely. Mm. But it is did, it did important, obviously, the staff, the staff that you have, um, they can be uh, they can be a great help. You can't do it just on your on your own. It's it's just not possible. Mm.
0: Is that what you found, Paul? Now you're kind of in the other camp as well as the supporting player to Nathan Jones. Is that something that you take pride in that you can help him from experience yourself?
1: I try to. Um, primarily, that's why I'm there to uh, to help him. You know, and uh, he's you know, for me, he's doing, uh, very well. And so we've been sort of roundabout about each other for the last seven years because I employed him at Charlton as a under 23 coach. And, uh, then he, he brought me in in nine, in 2016. So we, you know, I, I can see that there is progression in everything he does. Uh, you know, uh, and um, he's, uh, he's, um, he's a typical he's an example of what we've been talking about about the, the work ethic and the the production line the uh, the presentations the tactical house and all that sort of stuff especially at a club where you know I think we've got the second lowest budget we've got a great bunch of lads. And he helps them through his uh, strategies and tactics. You know, we uh, they go out there well armed, and uh, uh, um, so I, I'm really uh, not proud of what I'm doing. I'm proud of what I see in terms of and what he's trying to achieve. And um, uh, it's management is more complex now. I think. I think uh, you know, uh, managing players is is. Is not easy. Uh, we are different. We're, we, Frank and I, are different. Uh, we were different as players, and uh, and and different in things we want and how we get. Perhaps sometimes go about getting it. Um, so there's been many, many changes, and. Uh, you have to go with the changes.
0: How do you go about managing players then, Paul? Uh, and how has that evolved? Because I speak. David Prusson was on here a while ago, and he said um, he said you were lovely you did a lot for his career, but you could be a bit scary. <laughs> have you had to evolve your approach to dealing with
1: players, Paul, or not over time? Well, I think I think you know you know when you say scary, it's uh, you know I think if oh. if, if he was a, if he could qualify that. It would <laughs> as a, I, this is the way I think anyway I, I, as a youth development coach because he came through with me as well I demanded certain things and it wasn't all about football it was about how to look after your money how to behave manners yes please no thank you you know so I was I lived amongst them and uh, and I cared about them you know and when you care. You know, you, you 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 create an environment of trust, and I tried to do that in management. It's not always easy. I mean, the two wonderful experiences I had with, with senior players were keeping Portsmouth up and Crystal Palace, and I was in you know in those jobs really for three months, um, and they were two of the best experiences I've, I've ever had. You know, especially Crystal Palace where. Uh, you know, they'd gone from top six and through uh, the financial situation had been docked ten points or twelve points and found themselves in the bottom four for the best part of the season and we we strove to make them better. And I I just listened to the players. In fact Sean Derry came to me and I was I was going away saying that we'll do this and and Sean came to me and says, boss. Uh, And we've got a friendship now, Sean and I. and He says, do you think we could just do this because we know that? And I said, absolutely. Absolutely. And we went and we did what the players were comfortable with and we retained our status in the Championship because of that intervention by the captain. And because I was probably 10 years further on or whatever, I listened. And... um, you know, it was, it happened and everybody was happy.
0: Mm-hmm. Did you have that at Forest, Frank, with Pierce and people like that? Paul's,
2: Paul's in the nail on the head there, really. Man management is the key to everything, really. There's obviously a certain degree of tactics. You've got to know what you're doing. But man management is the, is the absolute most important part of the whole the whole job, I think. Um, I mean that was Brian Clough's greatest uh, greatest strength I'm sure Paul would agree he was a fantastic man manager um, in his own way um, a complete natural at it. he'd never taken a course on it or he'd never read a book about it he just had an instinct uh, of doing things right um, and you have to do that I mean I had a uh, when I went to Forest, I ended up with a with a group of, uh, of very, very good senior players. Uh, Pierce, especially, who was a captain and was a great captain for me. Whilst I was there, uh, Colin Cooper and Steve Chettle. They were the three who I, I lent quite heavily on, um, especially when I was having to deal with Stan Collymore who was a bit of a problem sometimes. In fact, it was a bit of a problem most of the time. (laughs) And uh, I leaned on them very heavily to help me in dealing with them because I could have found them every week. Um, But that would have been self-defeating. So I kind of nursed them along, as I say, with the the help of uh, those three players. And we got two fantastic years out of them, you know so t-
0: man management is, is absolutely vital. Is man you know. management harder now Paul do you think with the way society changes has it become more of a
1: challenge The dressing room looks so different now you know we've got, we've got uh, certainly in the in the top two divisions there are, there are um, more foreign players where you know they you know they can be different and so you have to tailor you know Uh, Our humor, uh, probably that's why they employ foreign managers because they, you know, I mean, if you look at, I think in when the Premier League started, I think it was seventy five percent, twenty five percent British and foreign. Now I think it's almost turned turtle and uh, the opposites there. You know, it's um, so management skills that you know our manager speaks spanish uh he's got a smattering of french um it helps you know i'm I'm not saying that's the you know most managers that come over are uh speak english uh uh, but it is different it it is different and you have to tailor you have to be clued in to the differences that take place within the dressing room
0: Mm -hmm.
2: I uh, mean, well, almost another big difference today, especially at the top level. Of course, you're dealing with a dressing room full of millionaires. Yes, yeah, so we can ask yeah. you about that. Yeah, that, uh, that makes the job much more complicated. You can't tell them to when I say jump, jump. You've got to persuade them that jumping is good for them. Yeah. Um, otherwise, they'll say, you know. Um, I am tell you I'll give you a great example when I played it for us played with Kenny Burns, as you know. And we played Man- Manchester City at the city ground one night. And Burns, he had the ball on the edge of our penalty area. Now in those days, if you remember you could just pass it back to the goalkeeper, Shilton would pick it up and put it down the field. Kenny thought he'd be clever and he tried to chip it to me standing on the corner of the eighteen yard box. Now that was the last place I wanted it anyway. <laughs> but he tried to chip it and Dennis Stewart who was, who was playing for Man City threw himself at the ball but just could get a glancing header on it and it went It went out for a goal kick and nobody thought anything of it. We came off the pitch at half time and Brian was waiting with an envelope for Kenny Burns. They <laughs> <laughs> gave him the on- brand envelope fine of 50 pounds for doing something stupid. He'd got the secretary out of it, out of the box, to go and get this letter done And Kenny just paid it. Paid it like that.
1: (laughs) I don't think he'd get away with that today. No. (laughs) Uh, Well, you wouldn't get away with it now because uh, centre backs have the uh, highest pass rate in the team, going square, square, back, 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 square. Yeah, that's true enough.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. (laughs) 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 Oh dear. Um... (laughs) <laughs> what difference does not having fans make? You're not having fans, and you're back in the ground. Um, does that change the way your teams are playing? Do you think now?
1: Uh, I, um, I think we've got used to it. You know, it's like it's like when there's huge crowds. You know, you you, you you're attuned to uh, the noise, and it's it's sort of it's just there. So equally, I think players have got attuned to that. But we had. Uh, if you remember, just before Christmas, before the last lockdown, we had one week a thousand, and then two thousand in. And of course, at Kenilworth Road, it's it's brilliant. It was absolutely superb. It made such a difference. You know, and our ground's really tight and and all that. So it it almost felt like we we'd uh, we had a full house. It was brilliant. It made such mm. a difference. You know. So mm. we've got to we've got to say, look, this is we've got to get them back in as. As soon as it's safe, yeah, absolutely.
0: Do you think teams are more conservative without fans in the grind, roaring them on?
1: I don't know. I've seen some wonderful performances. Uh, I've seen some, uh, you know, watch the Premier League, and, and I can switch the Premier League off as well because some games are are, are poor. But I, I would hazard a guess that those games might be poor with uh, a full house as well. You know, I, I just think some teams in the Premiership are negative, but I'm. Um, and they have to be, uh, don't get me wrong, it's, it's preserv- self-preservation. But um, I've heard you know, some people blame, blaming poor performances on which we were there. Uh, I'm not sure. I think, I think professionals uh, get a grip. Might just have a little bit left out of it, but I, I can't really, you know. No, I don't think so. <laughs>
0: Um, one thing I wanted to ask you both about, as I said before we started recording, is about team talks, and if, if they're a bit of an art. I mean, Frank, what what did you try and convey in team talks? Was everyone some big Tuchelian speech that tried to rather raise spirits or was, did you try and do something different?
2: No, I left that to Pacey. <laughs> um, I, I don't think uh, the team talk before they, the team actually go out in the dressing room is, is that important, really. Hmm. I mean, all the work, I'm sure Paul would agree with that. He's, you know, I've been out a long time now, but I'm sure to still do it. All the preparation would have been done long before three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. Um, I mean, but, uh, you know, you, you, you ask about learning things from people. Brian's team's talks were legendary. He very rarely said anything. <laughs> um, he would come in just before the bell went. And he would pick the ball up and say, "This is a ball. When you get it, keep it." End of story. Um, so there are all there are all kinds of uh, of different ways. Unless you unless you're that kind of individual, this great up and at stuff is uh, is vastly overplayed. I think it was never something that uh, that I did.
1: No, I, I agree with Frank. I think uh, our dressing room, at Nottingham Forest was. Get your legs stretched out. It was the <laughs> quietest restroom I've ever been. I've ever been in. Open the he opened the door so the opposition could see us just just stretched out, quiet, looking daggers at them as they walked past. And uh, and uh, and then you know that was it. Get out and you know do your do your job. But the um, I I totally agree with Frank. You know I think uh, the work's done. Uh, you know. Back end of the week work has, has been done. Um, little reminders uh are put there. The I think the biggest team talk is half time, uh, where you you may have to adjust or change or calm things down or whatever. I think I think the prep the main prep for the manager is when he goes in at half time, you know, where are we, what have we done, you know. That's what I think like. that's the most important
2: yeah. yeah I would agree with that um, and I think the other danger is and I found this when I first started is saying too much Yeah You know you you talk for the sake of it um, like fifteen minutes is, is quite a long time really and I think you've got to be careful that you don't you know you don't try and overdo it obviously as you, as you, you're right depending on how the game's gone there are some things that you need to say and need to adjust Um, but you just have to be careful that you don't overdo it you know Mm -hmm. and I when when the 15 minute half time thing came in I kind of deliberately developed uh, uh, a method if you like of saying nothing for five minutes literally just get in the dressing room the players do what they've got to do most of them would go to the toilet uh, maybe change the boots, or do this, or have a shout at each other, and just let them all settle down, and then try and and say what you wanted to say in, in that ten minutes rather than stretching it out.
1: Yeah, mm. I I agree. Uh, Fifteen minutes is far too long. Ten minutes is probably too long for most of us. And uh, uh, it's what you say, uh, and I think the halftime talk is 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 you've got to be insightful. Uh, uh, direct and
0: positive. Mm. What about post-match? Because you see these videos of Warnock's meltdowns after a Sheffield United games, one I can think of and that, Leighton Orient one with, um, I can't remember his name, one of your many successors, Frank, but play, managers getting, going mental at players. How do you two view a post-match um, team talk? Do you just tell the players to go home and forget about it and come back the next day? Or do you two go mad at them?
1: After a game it was very dangerous to to let one go, you know, to, to let rip because uh, when we were managing, we, we had less analysis um, and even more so now with analysis, you can always, you know, until you've seen it, you can you can be slightly wrong in your assessment and all that. So I've prepared, me personally, I I, uh, I didn't go crazy after a game uh, and certainly not for any length of time, uh, and and I wasn't very. Uh, I, I didn't get personal at all.
2: Yeah, I try. I mean, I tried to to, to do that. Uh, the same kind of thing. Um, you're right, Paul. The analysis wasn't as thorough in those days, um, but there was always something that you could you could look at over a 36 hours. And uh, I always felt that that losing. And, you thought you'd played badly you'd never played as badly as you really thought you had and winning you'd never played as well as you thought you had you know so it was was better to have a period of introspection if you like and really go over it and think about yourself before you start telling the players either what they did right or what they did wrong Mm -hmm. because obviously the you know the worst thing is to try start telling people what they did wrong, and and it's, they didn't. You know, it was something else. So I, I think that's right. I mean, that was that, that was the approach I tried to adopt.
0: How much has analysis changed the game, Paul? When you're working in it now, day to day, I see Luton have just taken on another uh, an analyst. <laughs> um, uh, is it a different game now in that sense, with all stats and everything?
1: Yes, it is. Uh, I. I... Uh, I have to do a set of pieces, and I, I work with an, an, an analyst uh, on those. And uh, uh, but, for instance, Chris Cohen, who has just come in, he's he's brilliant, you know. And the manager, absolutely brilliant at uh, dissecting a game, or, or in Chris's case, you know, just uh, taking the detail out of training or a game and and reviewing it with players, uh, is for me second to none, you know. And, and I. I'm I'm learning uh, from them you know they they're they're absolutely top draw and uh, it plays a huge part and of course if you can imagine the premiership now where if you're Manchester City or or Liverpool playing FA cup games uh, premier league games champions league there's very little time you can get out on the grass you know so I I would imagine I mean I, I don't know but I would imagine a lot of the work is, is done in the, in the uh, lecture room and through video analysis. What
0: role did analysis play when you were managing then, Frank? Was it more in the, in, in the back burner type thing then?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we didn't, have, uh, we didn't get every game videoed. There wasn't that many games on television. Um, so it was just done with the staff, really. You know, you'd gather the gather staff around and, uh, and, and talk about it and discuss it. Uh, and try and, co- try and come out with the positives. Uh, I do worry sometimes about the game today. <clears throat> uh, I think the game is drowning in analysis and statistics. Paul might disagree with me because I'm on the outside. I'm, I'm a dinosaur. I'm on the outside looking in. Um, but you're talking about being a manager today. I sometimes feel a bit sorry for, for the lads today. They've got, they've got to go through all these courses do all these exams, they've got to got know how to do a PowerPoint presentation or you won't get a job um, because the game's still the same. You've got to win football matches. Um, but you've got to be able to pass exams. You've got to get all the qualifications. Um, but when it all boils down to it, you've still just got to win football matches. That's how you keep your job.
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean, I must admit... I see expected goal tables and expected assist tables. I mean, really, there's only one table that counts, and that's the league table. So uh, you do uh, feel there's quite a lot of emphasis on it. Do you think it's too much, Paul, or not? Or do you see the benefits of of analysis? Uh,
1: No, I I see the benefits, but I'm also... um, uh, And I've seen how it works uh, well... Um, from a teaching point of view, from a, a strategic point of view, uh, I think, uh, and like you, Frank, and I, by the way, you are not a dinosaur by any stretch of the imagination. But you know, I if 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 we had another word, I'd I'd fall into the same category, and um, I think that uh, we be, we are led by expectations so for instance if we signed a player if if we signed a player from Manchester City I think he would expect to see what um, what he's had at his previous club if he was a you know and I think we are led by uh, 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 people who succeed and uh, uh, I haven't got I haven't got an inkling into what happens at the big clubs, but I would imagine that they are uh, they operate
0: in this in this way. The last area I wanted to touch on before I let you both go is we have talked about dealing with owners and dealing with players. The other thing is dealing with the media um, and people like me. So feel free to say what you want. Um, what role do you think the media plays, Frank? And what was your experiences of, of dealing with them at different clubs? Did it vary from club to club?
2: Well, that, I mean that that side of the job has changed, like. A million percent you know um, I mean the Premier League managers have <coughs> they've got to come out uh, and, uh, contractually they've got to come out and do an interview within 10-15 minutes <coughs> of the game they've got the, the national press to deal with the local press to deal with foreign press to deal with um, and the spotlight on the game is, is just intense and unforgiving uh, newspaper journalists have changed when I played and when I was a manager, I was friendly with a lot of a, a lot of uh, pressmen, reporters, and I could trust them. Uh, nowadays, it just seems as though every and, and I don't blame the reporters; they're being put under pressure by the editors, who are being put under pressure by their owners. Um, they're all looking for scandal and looking for stories that will that will you know do the club down. So it's it's a very very difficult job. Um, for managers to deal with the media today, I think fortunately most of the, uh, the big clubs. I'm not sure, Paul. Or the, or the, the budget that you're on alone would run to this, but most of the big clubs have a full time press officer. Part of his job or her job is to is to help the manager deal with the uh, to deal with the uh, increasing demand of the media. I I had
1: uh, uh, a brilliant. Uh Brilliant man at, at Portsmouth, who led on the way to the, the press room after a game, would lead me through what what people what he was expecting people to say. He was brilliant, uh, you know, and he got it. He very rarely got it wrong. Um, but I, I'm not the one. I'm I'm really a, a poor person to ask about uh, the media because I, I have a friend in television who said to me, she, she a lady, and she says um, she said to me. You've you've got to sharpen up. Uh, You've got to answer the questions a little bit quicker. Because I would... I I, I think I'm paranoid. And I think I'm I'm so worried about uh, what I would say that I have to think about the question. I I mean, to be fair, in my defence, I've always been like that, a bit slow. But, But... you learn that from Hart Wilkinson. <laughs> it, doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't come across well when you're on the telly, and uh, but I, I do have to think uh, about the answer, and uh, so where an interview might he might want to get it over with in a couple of minutes, probably takes about ten with me. But it's um, it is so important uh, to get it right, and that's you know I'm I'm uh, I'm. I'll, Be perfectly honest about my situation but uh it is important that you know you project i think you have to tell a story to get you know uh to get onto your so i think you as a manager have to learn how to run the interview and Mm. uh uh, i'm 67 now and it still escaped me when you say when you say run
0: the interview, is that you want to get well, your I, message across then, and we're trying to get what we want out of you? Is it a bit of a game of chess? Do you think? I think so. Yeah. Hmm. yeah, I'm sure that's right. Do you? kind of think managers shouldn't have to do these press conferences straight after games because feelings might be heated and they might you might say the wrong thing or something you don't want to say. Then, Frank.
2: Oh, well, ideally, ideally, but I do understand the the. Uh, you know, the, the television companies pay an awful lot of money to the game to uh, to be given this kind of uh, access. And um, we have to, as, a, as an industry, we have to accept their demands that sometimes are going to make it difficult for the managers. Obviously, it would it would be much easier for the managers. I and you could sit for an hour and really think about it. Um, but that's no good to the television company, so we have to accept that it's a, it's part of the, part of the, the trade-off, you know. Mm, mm, it you could. obviously it would be much easier if he was able to relax for an hour and have a drink and a beer and compose himself, but that's no mm. good for the television company, so uh, so we have to do it. All managers have to do it.
0: Mm, mm. You agree, then, Paul? You'd rather not speak to the media quite as often if you were a manager.
1: No, I I fully understand. I agree with uh, Frank totally. Uh, It's it's here and it's it's we have to manage it. But the a lot of mistakes, even by the top managers, have been uh, made in you know in that thirty-five minute period after a game is finished, and you know, ordinary human beings like me uh, are not the only ones to have. Made mistakes in that period because because of the emotion, you know. Top managers like Sir Alex uh, or Pep Guardiola, you know, it's it's understandable. I, I you know I'm sure Frank does. We look at them and think, yeah. I'm I'm sort of saying, oh I'm so pleased, uh, Mister Guardiola, that you've got totally annoyed on this one because it makes <laughs> us all feel a bit human. Yeah, yeah. I mean really
2: you have to. Uh... You have to remember as a manager, when, you, when you're when you doing an interview for the media, you have to be aware of, wh- of what your audience is, and there are several parts to it. Obviously, the person who is doing the uh, uh, interview, like yourself, Matt, you're talking to him directly, but your directors are listening to you, your players are listening to you, and your supporters are listening to you. So you've got to be aware of all those different uh, different. Parts of the audience who are going to who are going to hear your interview, and uh, it's very very difficult in that period straight after a game, mm-hmm. when you're all wound mm-hmm. up. And uh, it, it, but it's something
0: that we have to do, or managers have to do. Frank mm-hmm. um, talks there about talking to players through the media. One thing I want to ask before I let you go is about losing a dressing room and when a job is kind of going wrong and you are, you are perhaps on the way out. Do you know when things are have gone wrong and you've lost the dressing room, Paul? Or is there a, a, a moment where you think, oh, hell, it's, this is all gone and I'm about to get the bullet or not?
1: I think i probably only felt um, maybe once that uh, the players were drifting um, but uh, uh, getting the sack do you know when it is well it, it, based on results you, you you know you can hazard a bit of a guess but um, no I I think you, you 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 know at all times you you've got to try and change losing the dressing room I only heard about that about fifteen years ago. You know, losing the dressing room—it was foreign to me until I heard the phrase through the media, and um, and I thought, "Wow, how how does that happen?" Because, but it does happen, and I I recognize it. Uh, If you lose it, can you get it back? What are the reasons for losing it? You know, is it is it you or is it? you know, a bad influence within the dressing room. I, you know, it can be either, both. You know, trying to address it is not easy, I would have thought.
0: Can you get it back? Because you can't just sell a player these days because of transfer windows and money in the game, and it's a lot easier to sack a manager. Can you get a dressing room back, do you think, or not? Well, you know, uh, I'll tell you how to go get on, it.
1: Go on, Frank. Win the next two matches. <laughs> I was just going to say, winning a football match didn't have to keep people quiet. You know, it's... Mm. Uh, and what that's you, what, the, you know... <laughs> not what you've is, got... Sorry, not sorry, what you've is got like the is saying, you got... When a football
2: match, it shuts everybody up. Yeah. I think there's a lot of rubbish taught about losing the dressing room. And what you've got to remember is in, in a dressing room, you might have... There are only like 15, 16 people who are going to be involved... <laughs> So you've got another ten or twelve, or maybe more. I mean, when I was at Manchester City, I had forty odd pros, yeah. forty odd full professionals. More than fifty percent of whom knew they were never going to get a game. So you know, you 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 have got to deal with them. Uh, Next, an, an old manager I can't remember who it was once said, "The key to keeping the dressing room is is keeping the." the 12 who are playing who hate you, apart from the others who aren't playing who despise you. <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh, this dressing room thing is uh, is vastly overplayed. If you win a couple of football matches, that, that solves the problem for you. But like Paul said, there will be issues in the dressing room because you've got all different personalities in there. Um, and the ones who aren't playing, the ones that you don't pick, you know, there there could be a very quickly become a problem um, that you have to deal with. Mm-hmm. And the way I dealt with it, I tried to be honest with everybody. I'm sure every manager would say the same. You try to be straight and honest with the, the people who aren't playing. Um, Brian was very, very good at this. A lot was easy for him because when I played, we only had 16. Yeah. The team a sixteen. So you always felt involved, even if you weren't actually in the eleven. pool you know. Yeah. Um, I, that that sixteen for two years virtually travelled as a group to to every game. Yeah. Um, now it's uh, now it's much different, you know. It was the it was the biggest problem for me at uh, at Manchester City. Uh, so many players who were never going to get a game couldn't move them on because they were on. Big money by championship standards, because they were at Manchester City, who were, you know, paid good money, but good wages. Um, so it's it's a never-ending problem. You've, problems could come from anywhere in the dressing room, but you got to win
0: football matches. That uh, that changes the uh, the whole atmosphere of the club. Mm-hmm is managing actually an enjoyable job and does it become a bit of a drug in a sense that you're just chasing that next win or um, you know, you can't let it go and you always want to get back in, Paul? Uh,
1: I I think I've had to come to terms uh, over the last few years that uh, I have a different role to play in football. Um, And uh, my, you know, I suppose my success has been with, uh, youth development, uh, and on at least two occasions, I've been uh taken into management through being at a club and doing youth development. So, I've I, I, re- I think I've only had one interview for a job. Um, oh, I've got the others, I haven't got a clue, I can't remember, but the uh, but it's um, uh. Football a wonderful game, but it's 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 tough and uh,
0: relentless. Mm, mm. I mean, is it enjoyable, Frank? When being a manager, do you think? Oh, parts of it are enjoyable. Uh, winning when you win a game, it's enjoyable. But
2: I always say, young managers today, it, it's a, it, it's 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 a very very difficult job. You know, the media, social media, all the outlets <coughs> the people have to vent their. Uh, for, I mean, some of the things that people are having to deal with uh, with today uh, on social media—absolutely disgraceful, you know. Uh, the one good thing about about no spectators is that the managers aren't getting abused by, by the supporters in the crowd uh, because there's nobody there, uh, but they're all going on social media instead. It, it, I say to managers, you know, would-be managers. It's a very, very difficult job. Mm. Um, you, as I said earlier, you've got to really want to do it. It has pluses, of course. I talked about that manager on £15 million. Well, if you can survive for a number of years and work your way up, um, you could come out of it. Uh, nowadays, there's a very, very wealthy mind, which is important. I know money is not everything, but, but it's important. Um, but it's... Uh, a lot of the job is, is not very pleasant. You try to ignore it, but listen, I've got to tell you no matter what people say, it, it's not a very pleasant experience when people are, are howling at you, shouting for you to be sacked, this, this kind of thing, and the other. Your family cop for it, you know. I mean, when I came to Forest, my daughter uh, came up with me and went to Nottingham uh, High School. And the first four months of my time here weren't uh, weren't very good at all, and she got you know she had a really tough time uh, to get through all that. So there are all, all kind of things you've got to consider. That's why I'm saying you really really want it. You need to want to do the job, you know. Mm. So
0: last question. I'll just,
2: sorry, I'll just say Paul Paul is unique, really, in the game. I think, and that he's moved up and down the the, the uh, coaching hierarchy in a way that I don't think anybody else has ever really uh, managed to do as he said he made his, uh, his initial reputation as a, as a fantastic uh, academy director at, uh, at Nottingham Forest um, but he's been, he's been a manager then he's gone back to youth development then he's been another manager then he's been assistant it speaks volume for him I think as a, as a person and uh, as, a, as a coach because paranoia is rife in football. All managers are paranoid. I don't care what they say. Some are more paranoid than the others. And a lot of managers I've known over the years would be very, very reluctant to hire somebody for their youth development scheme who had shown an ambition to be a manager. And vice versa. Paul is like he's managed to, to do it. And as you said, he was 67. He's been at the game a long, long time. Mm, Uh, He's mm. obviously a a brilliant coach and a great bloke.
0: Last question, because you've led into it there (laughs) nicely, Frank. Um, If you could go back to late 80s, um, Frank Clark and Paul Hart, before you got into management, would would you tell yourselves, sod it, do something else? Or would you relive it all again, the whole management careers that you've had?
2: well i would i would relive it i would I, I i wanted to do it um it it was a wonderfully self-fulfilling um way of uh, being employed uh it wasn't all all, all roses all the way but uh, even my time at Le- my time at lane Orient, which was my first managerial job was incredibly difficult i was working crazy hours I had no staff. Well, I had a physio and a player coach. uh, And that's all I had initially. I was working ridiculous hours. The club were close to going out of business every couple of months. Um, But when I look back on it, it was an incredible experience. Worked with some uh, wonderful people, made some really good friends, not just at Orient, right throughout my, my managerial career. Um, so no, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't have swapped it. I'd have done some things differently, hopefully better. Uh, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't have uh, changed most of it. What about you, Paul? Would you have
0: done it all again?
1: This uh, I've been in 51 years in the summer. Uh, i If you saw me play, and you've seen my management skills, you would say I'm a lucky man. <laughs> <laughs> hey, typically... <laughs> <laughs> I think I think I am a lucky man. I've been privileged today, and you know, uh, as Frank says, uh, great friends we have. When we meet for coffee with uh, John Robertson and that, uh, the 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 Mickey taking is relentless, and and it's unique. You know, the memories, players I played with, great players. Um, Managers I've had, fantastic. The help I've been given by my staff, by uh, by fellow fellow professionals, um, I've been privileged and I would do it again tomorrow.
0: I just wanted to finish with um, a plug for... Uh...
1: Uh-oh.
0: Yeah, it's frozen.
2: Can you hear me, Paul? I can hear you, Frank. Oh, we're back. The pressure of being an interviewer got to you, See,
0: <laughs> Sorry for any technical problems at the end there with the connection, internet problems in the pandemic world. I just wanted to finish this week's podcast uh, mentioning a friend of the show and a friend of um, Paul and Frank in Gary Bertles, whose wife, Samantha, has um, cancer, and they're doing a fundraising drive for her for Treetops Hospice. Um, which has raised over £4,000 already with friends and family walking 20 miles or just donating if you can't, uh, contribute to the walking effort yourself. So I'll, um, put a link to that on my pinned tweet, which is at Matt Davis underscore N-P-D-A-V-I-E-S. D A V I E S. Or, um, you can also find a link to it at the Nottinghamshire Live website. Um, and hopefully people can, can donate something because Gary's, um, such a really uh, wonderful bloke, and everyone here loves him. And I know Forest fans love him too. And people said a lot of lovely stuff about his wife. So it'd be great to support them if we can. Um, as ever, do give the podcast a rating on iTunes. Uh, five out of five would be nice. Uh, and subscribe there, and also subscribe to our YouTube channel. We'll be back next week with a more normal episode. Uh, looking ahead to the Derby game, and looking back on recent matches uh, as Forest look to steer clear. Of relegation thanks to frank and paul for uh, their insights there on uh, management it was a really wonderful episode uh, i hope you enjoyed this one and we'll see you all soon thank you for listening to garibaldi red a nottingham forest podcast if you enjoyed today's episode then please let us know we love hearing your feedback we'll be back soon with another episode thanks for listening